0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Hello.
2: Um, welcome. My name is Maya Marshall. I'm from Haymarket Books. Uh, and welcome to our launch event for Choice Words, Writers on Abortion, which was edited by the poet Annie Finch. Um, this landmark literary anthology of poems and stories that takes back to the cultural conversation on abortion. Um, we hope you'll take this opportunity to learn about each of these authors and to pick up a copy of the book that have, that 20 years in the making collects essential voices that renew our courage and the struggle to defend reproductive rights. Right now at Haymarketbooks.org, you can buy your copy at a 30% discount and receive a complimentary ebook. Um, this evening, we'll hear from our readers, followed by a panel discussion, after which we'll take some questions from you. Um, and tonight we're going to hear from Annie Finch, Desiree Cooper, Sonia Kamal, and Alexis Quinlan. Annie Finch is a poet and editor of Choice Words, Writers on Abortion, and her pieces in the book are She Did Not Tell Her Mother and An Abortion Day Spell in Two Voices. Desiree Cooper as a writer and producer of the short film, The Choice, and her piece, His First Response, Sonia Kamal is author of Unmarriageable, and her contribution to Choice Words is The Scarlet A. Lastly, Alexis Quinlan, poet and educator, whose uh, contribution to the book is Regarding Choice. Welcome, Annie Finch.
1: Thank you. This is a very exciting day day in the birth of this book, even though it is happening online, I actually think this is wonderful because the goal of the book is to widen the conversation nationally, internationally, and to really make it clear that abortion is a central issue, not only in the individual lives of the people who have children and have abortions, but also for politics all around. It's it's a central human freedom issue. And uh, reproductive autonomy is irreplaceable as, as as something that affects all about us, our minds, bodies, heart, rules, and spirits. So I uh, started editing this book after I had an abortion of my own. And I looked and could not really find literature to help me to process that experience. There were a couple of great poems that I knew, um, Lucille Clifton's poem and Gwendolyn Brooks's poem about abortion. Both of them are in this book. And other than those little glimmers of light, I could not find the literature that I needed to support me. So I started on this journey, and it took 20 years uh, because the work was not easy to find. I did a lot of outreach to writers, uh, and I did a lot of research. I reached out to scholars in so many different fields, um, colonial American scholars and Egyptologists and Eastern European scholars, and um, I just I, I, I created a piece. Um, based on interviews with teenagers in Kenya because in that country there was no literature published that, that I could find. So I did everything I could to widen the, the kinds of voices in the book. And... The genres as well: poems, prose, tweets, mm-hmm. plays, and uh, covering centuries and continents. Uh, the oldest piece here goes back to the 1600s, and there are six continents represented. And it brought home to me how widespread this is, and also how culturally determined it is, the experiences that we have about abortion. There are so many different kinds of approaches here. And I think the biggest takeaway for me was that we can make it whatever we want to be. We can make abortion be the kind of experience that we choose because we really have freedom over this. And I think a lot of a lot of us don't understand that. We feel as if there's a religious or ethical or social or cultural burden that comes along with it inevitably. And you look at this book, you start reading the stories, you see that is really not the case. So I'm often asked about you know the experience of editing it and what stuck with me the most. I would say for me it might have been the feeling that I was giving permission to so many to tell their abortion stories that they were not able to even write before, let alone publish. And when I look at the the people in the book who said to me, I, I didn't know how to write this story before, but the existence of this anthology gave me permission. And in 20 years, to write it to edit it. it seemed like a long time uh, while I was in the middle of it. And at one point I almost gave up. I just thought, well, this is dragging on. It's taking forever. I, you know, I, I just don't know why should I bother to finish this really. like um, I've already edited a lot of anthologies. I wasn't really keen to do another. i got a lot of other projects going on. Then Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed that. Just did it for me. I got such a fire under my ass. I was. I am finishing this book. This is something I can do, and this will make a difference. And it already is making a difference. And I, I believe uh, there's an article recently in Ms. Online by uh, Ashley Jordan who said that there is um, that this is. It's not just literature. It's also like something that it changes feminist movement. It changes the movement towards reproductive freedom because literature creates the sense of reality in the way that nothing else. It is real. It is the greatest writers. You know, there are people in here like Margaret Atwood and Sonia Sanchez and Audre Lorde and Tozaki Shange and Joyce Carol Oates and Mary Wollstonecraft. I mean, great, great writers who um, who just are turning their talents to sharing this experience which is so often considered secret, uh, silenced, shameful, or if not shameful, at least isolated, as if there's no need to talk about it. They're claiming it as one of the great subjects of literature, which it should be. Life and death all rolled into one. And uh, there's, it's an amazing experience to read through the book. So um, after the Correct Kavanaugh confirmation. I just worked really really hard on the book for the final two years. And at then I was glad that it took so long because of the permission and because of you know the levels and layers of material that came out. So I'm just gonna read a tiny bit from the introduction and then my uh my little poem from the section on will. And I will say also this book is organized into five sections. Uh and Again, I think it was good that it took 20 years because that's how long it took me to come up with the organization. I had to change and evolve as a person in order to come up with it. Um, I think if I had edited it 10 years earlier, it might have been chronological or alphabetical. And I don't think that would have made the book accessible in the way I want it to be accessible. Um, I really wanted it to reach people from many different um, need communities, really, um, individuals who in their families or their own lives want to, want to have literature as a companion, as a uh, help, um, and then, uh, people who want to, from a more academic or educational point of view, understand the literature of abortion and uh, to fill in that gap, that huge gaping silence. And then also as an activist tool. So um, this it's divided into these five sections which give you an opening through the mind or through the heart or the body or the will or the spirit. And in the mind, we have... um, this is about the decision to make an abortion, all that goes into it. And you really realize that it is the person's choice. It is the individual's choice. And, you know, normally a woman, but not always, I'm just going to say a person's choice. Um, and then with the heart, we have the emotional feeling, the, the support systems that are needed, the intense emotional range that uh, that is affected by this. And then uh, the body, and the, the will the political and personal will involved, and then the spirit, which is something that is very close to my own heart and is a part of the abortion uh, experience that we we don't really hear about much from the left or from the pro-choice community, how important it is to have a spiritual context. And I, I looked hard for pieces that would provide that, and I'm really happy to have some beautiful pieces in here uh, from that perspective. So that's um, the point of my poem, which I will close with it's called an abortion day spell for two voices and we have the voice of the mother and then the voice of the um the embryo fetus child baby whatever you want to call it i think that it's very important that everyone who's having this experience use the words that they want to use um for what's happening so i'm going to actually read it twice because it's a spell And uh, it helps to repeat them. An abortion day spell for two voices. As I turn your blood back to the earth, I am life. You are death. And we kiss through the fire that is my freedom's birth. By the womb of our love's endlessness, as you turn my blood back to the earth, I am death. You are life, and we kiss as we move through the deep, giving forth to the web that is love-woven bliss by the fire that is our freedom's birth. And you have the the mother's voice in regular thought, then the baby in italics, and then the last dance. is a combination of the two, which really reflects for me my experience of what it was like to come to terms with my own abortion. So... One more time, an abortion day spell for two voices. As I turn your blood back to the earth, I am life, you are death, and we kiss through the fire that is my freedom's birth. By the womb of our love's endlessness, as you turn my blood back to the earth, I am death, you are life, and we kiss as we move through the deep, giving forth to the web that is love-woven bliss by the fire that is our freedom's birth. Thank you, Thank you Amy, and, and welcome, Desiree
2: just trying to
3: unmute myself. And I'm just always struck by hearing that spell, Annie. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, I really want to thank you um, for that 20-year labor and delivery right on time. I think that um, we are in such precarious times right now on so many levels. And um, I think about how hard it must be to make these choices in this particular moment um, where the world is so upside down. So we need your magic. We need your spells. We need this literary journey so that you can kind of go through and find the one that resonates with you. And the the breath is amazing in in this book. It doesn't come from one perspective. So it's, it's just incredible. It's something that um, I hope, Everyone picks up and has a copy of. And thank you, Haymarket Books, for making this possible. Getting behind us a thousand percent. Go to their website and make sure you get a copy. You will you will not regret. This is a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and thank you for including me in it. I'm I'm quite honored. My piece is called First Response. My name again is Desiree Cooper, and um, I'm I'm a journalist, but I'm also a flash fiction writer. And so this is a piece of Flash that I'm going to read for you. First response. The moment we read the stick, some of us buckled on the bathroom floor, having only bled once, we thought it was impossible. Having bled forever, we shook our graying heads and thought, this is no miracle. Susan, who at 14 still slept with her favorite doll, Bit back the tears and started packing her bags. We knew our mothers would not believe us. Abby bought a ticket to New York to secretly take care of it. We locked ourselves in the bathroom sobbing while the kids banged on the door, Mommy, please come out. For some of us, three healthy children were enough. For others, one special needs child was one too many. One day, We would have many children. One day, decades later, we would still be child-free. The ultrasound technician drew in a deep breath and did not let it out. We feared a perfect baby. Undecided, we waited too long. Decisive, we were instantly clear about what to do. We were happy about it until we weren't. We borrowed cash from our friends so that it wouldn't show up on the insurance bill. We had no insurance. We had insurance, but the DNC was covered only from miscarriages. Brittany's college roommates threw her a baby shower with vodka served in sippy cups. Our aunt said, you're lucky you won't be butchered on some, in someone's basement like I was. Lynn was dropped off by her stepfather along with her suitcase and her cat. We called in sick at the firm, even though it was tax season. There is a boy after and pushed her out of the car. You better have dinner ready tonight and your fat ass better not still be pregnant. The bus, a cab, the heat, a bike, the snow, the traffic. We were late, but we made it. We were two hours early because we couldn't sit at home alone.
1: In the waiting room,
3: we would not return a gaze. Our men held us tightly. Jan nervously fiddled with the ring from her make-believe fiancé. We were by ourselves and puffy-faced. Diane was already showing every time she seemed to show a few weeks earlier. One couple argued with the receptionist. They had driven from another state, but didn't know about the 24-hour waiting period. Some of us let tears river, while others slumped in pink chairs and listened to our iPods. We were horrified to be with these people. Full of shame, we fingered a rosary. Full of anger, we cursed God. Relax. The kind nurse held our hands as the doctor ready. You're going to be fine. We wondered if anything would be fine again. Annie quaked. The doctor took off his mask and said, I'm not doing this, you're not ready. We listened to the vacuum. We didn't know what hit us. When the room went silent, we rose up in wonder. It had been so easy. The nausea was over at last. For Kita, the nausea from the chemo would go on. We wondered if we would ever forgive ourselves. We didn't need anybody's forgiveness. Every recliner in the recovery room was full. It was over. We looked up. Many smiled compassionately. Some felt that theirs was the only good reason. Liz, who still had three AP exams, didn't know who she was anymore. We wanted to hold hands. We wanted to get the hell away from these losers. We wanted to coon in our beds. We longed for our mothers. Some lovers promise, we'll try again when I get a job. Cindy wouldn't have to cancel her Paris vacation. Carrie forgot to ask if she could hustle that night. We realized how much our husbands loved us. Jenny had to wait until Child Protective Services came to pick her up. We were relieved that our grandchildren wouldn't see our swelling stomachs. Joyce didn't have sex until she was married eight years later. Trish went back to work like nothing happened. We made a donation every anniversary. We were pregnant with memory for the rest of our lives. Never
2: thought about it again. Thanks. Thank you, Desiree. What a perfect encapsulation of that ages and classes and possible backgrounds of all the people who are represented in this book. Thank you for that reading. Um, And welcome, Sonia. Hi, everyone.
0: Thank you. so much, Annie, for your hard work and putting together this fabulous anthology, which is going to be so helpful for women today, tomorrow, and really going on forward. Um, Haymarket Books for publishing it. Um, and and Maya, for your editorial skills also. And um, thank you so much, all the contributors who are with us in spirit here today and online. And um, I will be... Um, I am... Um, Predominantly a novelist. I write personal essays also, um, dabble in poetry. And, um, my piece, The Scarlet A, is set in Pakistan and it is nonfiction, um, and the story of three girls who happen to belong to the same high school class. And it so happened that they, uh, do not know it, know of each other, but they found, they found some reason to tell me about their stories. And, and in writing their stories down, I chose to use the reenactment form. Um, I thought that would be the closest to their voices telling their stories as they told me. Um, uh, and, and I hope I have been able to do justice to their voices because premarital sex and, um, and any pregnancy and abortion is illegal in Bakh. Premarital sex is, is a crime punishable by um, a jail term. Uh, so these women are not able to come out with this. Uh, so, to, to carrying their voices was a huge responsibility for me. I'm going to read the the reenactment of the first girl's story. Um, the the essay is split into each girl's story with her year given, and they all connect at the end because they're all they don't know they're from the same high school class, but I I happen to know that. So, the Scarlet A. The following reenactments are based on separate and extensive interviews from one high school class in Pakistan. The women agreed to share their experiences under the condition of pseudonyms. Amna, 1995. Hours after arriving home in Lahore for summer break from college in America, I told my mother I had to go to the store to buy sanitary napkins, my decoy. I drove to a pharmacy in another neighborhood and purchased two pregnancy tests with cash scrounged up from the insides of old handbags. My boyfriend in college in America, Mike, and I had used a condom from a dispensary in the girls dorm bathrooms. I was pregnant. Sarai, my best friend, came over immediately. Can you and Mike get married? She asked. Sarai was married. The ultimate goal for good girls. I certainly did not want to get married just because I was pregnant. In the Bollywood films I'd grown up on, an unwed pregnant girl always commits suicide to save her family's honor. But life is not a movie. pre I was a virgin in a committed relationship of five years with my Pakistani paramour, Q. One weekend, Hugh had paid me a visit from his college. Perhaps because five years seemed testimony of everlasting love, and because we planned to marry, we had sex. Also, what happens in America stays in America, and so Pakistani girls learn the art of subterfuge in order to survive what, in other cultures, are simply rites of puberty, dating, kissing, sex. Soon after, I discovered Q was cheating on me. Although Islam forbids premarital sex for both genders, Sarai consoled me that, quote, boys will be boys, unquote, and that I was Q's one true love. This double standard upset me, so I cast off the shackles of purity, honor, and reputation and broke up with him. A few months later, I'd started dating Mike because if boys could be boys, then why couldn't girls be girls? I had two options, abortion or adoption. I can't abort, I told Fatma, I don't want to. I was roughly two and a half months gone. My due date was December, which meant back in college and winter break. I would secretly carry the baby to term while at college, not return to Pakistan during winter break, and instead deliver the baby and give it up for adoption. Under this plan, I would not get to keep my child, but I was determined to someday have a relationship. I slept soundly for the first time in a long while, only to awake the next morning to pandemonium. My sister's in-laws-to-be had set her wedding date, December. In some cultures, out of wedlock and illegitimate are archaic terms, but in honor-purity cultures, they remain relevant. If I returned to Pakistan in December, unwed and pregnant, the scandal would destroy and taint everyone. Friends, extended family, parents, my sister's wedding could be cancelled. But there was no excuse valid enough to miss a sibling's wedding. I had to get an abortion. In Pakistan, premarital sex, let alone being unwed and pregnant, is a crime. Abortion is legal only in order to save the mother's life and in cases of necessary treatment, whatever that means. In Islam, an abortion is legal until the fetus's organs have formed and quote, life is breathed into it, unquote, which according to most Islamic scholars is around 120 days. I was already nearing 90 days. At home, I was dying of guilt. My mother is a doctor She believes girls who abort are hellbound. Doctors who perform abortions are devils. And she will not work with a colleague if she finds out they are soft on abortion. Sarai and I knew we had to find a doctor who did not know my mother. After two frantic weeks, Sarai managed to find a friend whose cleaner had used the services of a cheap doctor who asked no questions. The doctor's place was situated by a well-known bridge. Sarai drove. An elderly woman in a floral Shalvarakutta, the doctor, opened the door to a small side room. We huddled in plastic chairs in front of a wooden desk with a pop-up calendar. The doctor stared at us. I was frightened she would recognize me as my mother's daughter. Who is getting it done, she said. Me, I squawked. Married? I lifted a hand temporarily wearing Sarai's wedding ring. The doctor barely glanced at it. Why isn't your mother with you? Dead. Blood rushed to my face for figuratively murdering my mother. Husband? The doctor asked stone-faced mother-in-law, sister-in-law? Sarai jumped in. She's newly married and does not want a child so soon. You are? Friend? I feared the doctor who would guess this was all a farce and kick us out, in which case the miracle I'd asked from Allah would be delivered and the baby would not be aborted. But then I'd be back to step one. I wanted to know what she would do with the remains, but I was terrified of the answer. I wanted to ask if the procedure was safe, but what right did I have to care about my safety? I did inquire at which hospital the abortion would take place. My fingers crossed that it would not be one where my mother practiced. There's your hospital. She pointed to a run-down gurney against one wall. I stared at the rickety bed, the grey wrinkled sheet, a huge black and white clock on the wall. Return in three days, she said, no eating after midnight cost 2,000 rupees cash only. Whenever I wanted to buy anything, music, makeup, shoes, I asked my parents for money and was expected to show what I'd spent it on. There was no way I could ask for 2,000 rupees and not be held accountable. To borrow from Girlfriends, I made up a story about losing my jewelry and I needed to replace it, but no one had any money. Desperate, I approached a male family friend with a liberal outlook. To my relief, he handed me the full amount, assuring me that there was no need to return it. However, his expression conveyed disappointment and disgust that comes with trusting a girl enough to allow her to study abroad, only to have her betray her morals and Muslim upbringing. Three days later, I pay the doctor first, and then I undress from the waist down. My feet are placed in stirrups. Sarai sits on a stool next to the gurney. She does not flinch at my bone-crushing grip. At the foot of the gurney, there is a steel trolley with surgical tools waiting to invade me. Sarai keeps whispering, it'll be okay. The doctor gives me an aspirin. How long will it take? I stammer. Five minutes. She tells me she's going to scrape the lining of my uterus and that I will feel some pressure. She bows between my legs and I hear a muffled roar like a vacuum cleaner. An excruciating spasm begins in my lower abdomen. I once stepped on an anthill and was bitten so badly I'd felt my foot was on fire. This was worse. This was boiling, acid, blistering, devouring, disintegrating my insides. I scream. The doctor slaps my inner inner thigh. Shut up. I whimper. She slaps me again. Shut up, or I will stop. She says that her husband is just beyond the door, leading from the side room clinic into the house. What, she demands, is he going to think is happening in here if he hears you? I bite my tongue. I try to think happy thoughts. I scream again. The doctor stops the machine. One more sound, she says, half-punching my exposed tummy, and I will send you home with the deed half done. I concentrate on the black and white clock hanging above me. The long hand and the short hand and the second hand are all moving, five minutes are longer. I can hear my baby being sucked out. I had wanted to deliver this baby and give it up for adoption, but now all I have to offer is death. I would like to see the remains, but I'm scared I will be denied this request and I do not want to give the doctor further control. For the first time, I fully fathom the gulf between the crimes of a man and the crimes of a woman. As I lie there, the clock ticking, my uterus being cleansed, I realise I hate this culture, which has forced me to kill my baby. But my culture will say I have only myself to blame. I had premarital sex and it is fitting that I suffer. After it is done, the doctor informs me to take over-the-counter painkillers for cramps and heavy bleeding. How heavy? I ask, weak from pain. For how long? Heavy, she says. One week, one month, it varies. I did not know then that having aborted the way I had, I risked uncontrolled bleeding, uterine damage, infections, a punctured uterus, septic shock, punctured bowels, possible chronic pain syndrome, and infertility. I would not know this until years later I looked up on the internet the risks of an, Ill, of an illegal, unhygienic, backstreet abortion. When I returned to college, I told Mike about the abortion and relief flooded his face. I broke up with him days later. I dreamed one night of a chubby baby boy who said, it's okay, I forgive you, forgive yourself, we'll meet again. Perhaps it was my unconscious assuaging my emotions so I could live with myself. But I'd like to believe it was my baby. Because since I'd always only wanted daughters, I had no reason to dream up a son. The doctor tells me to get rest and dismisses us. Sarai helps me hobble, no, towards the car where her husband has been waiting. I get in, I shut my eyes, I return her wedding ring. And then we have um, Hajra's story and Sarai's story. And then Amna's story wraps up uh, very briefly. Amna, 2001. In Pakistan, married women routinely have abortions. These abortions are often performed for financial reasons or to space out children or as birth control or because boys are preferred. My married cousin Hawa was admitted into the hospital this morning for an abortion, though officially it will be recorded as an appendectomy. She sits propped up against pillows from home on a comfortable hospital bed in her private room. She looks fresh, as if she's come back from a spa. I think what a difference anesthesia and painkillers can make. My mother and my cousin are opening plasticware and the room is flooded with the comforting smell of soup. I thought my mother was against abortion for any reason. Perhaps my mother has softened her stance. Perhaps now I can come clean. Now I can tell my mother about my ordeal. Ammi, I say, do you know about this doctor by this bridge who used to, maybe still does, perform abortions? My doctor mother makes an ugly face. That woman performs illegal abortions. She is a disgrace. She should be put away. I sputter that Hawa's abortion should also be a disgrace since her pregnancy did not endanger her life. Hawa and her mother are used to bra- brazen me harboring hatke or far from the norm opinions and ignore my statement. I sputter that Hawa's abortion should not should also be a disgrace since her pregnancy did not endanger her life. Hawa and her mother are used to brazen me harboring hatke or far from the norm opinions and ignore my statement. My mother asks how I know about the woman by the bridge because I went there. I want to scream. I went there in order to save our family from disgrace. I want to tell my mother everything, but I don't. I don't want to witness the censure in her eyes for the unwed me, even as she spoons love into my married cousin's mouth. Though now that I'm married, my mother, I'm sure, will be more than pleased to hold my hand and feed me soup, should I too have a pregnancy. I want to abort. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Um, that was wonderful, even with a little little hiccup. Um, and thank you for sharing the stories to us. Thank you. Yes. Welcome. Along. Thank you. Um,
4: Hi, I'm Alexis Quinlan. I want to thank you very much, Maya and Haymarket. This is great that this happened. And Annie, you are just a hero to me, you know, in pulling this together and letting me, you know, do a little bit of help last year. It was just such a treat. And Actually, both Sonia's and Desiree's pieces are so powerful. I've never. I feel like it was the same time about this year, about last year. That anyway, I was proofreading the same kind of, same kind of light in the air. And okay, so I do want to stop before I read a few words. Um, I never wrote about abortion until Annie started on this project, started really speaking about the project. And I started reading from it. And I do, I am interested in found language and sort of plagiarism, conceptual poetry. And I have felt uh, the language around abortion is always been actually creating in and out um. I'll lean forward. Okay. So can you hear this? I can hear you. No. Yes. I just didn't know her yes. Yes. So I'm reading now.
2: Can you hear me? Or We can hear you. I don't think it's an issue of how close you are. It's, okay. I think it's an Internet issue. So if there's any other program open, close it. Um. And then maybe we'll just be dealing with the delay.
4: Yeah, I don't. I I think I pretty much shut down everything. I will. Force a, I'll force a few quits. Uh, anyway, so I was disturbed. I've always been disturbed about the language around choice, and I did want to steal some language back. I never understood how the anti-choice people got to call themselves pro-life, not only because many choose abortion so we can save our own lives. We're still debating
2: in and out.
4: I'm not sure why. Okay. I don't have a solution.
2: Um, I wonder if it's possible to to have you call in with a phone. Okay, well let's just Let's try it. Yeah, let's go. I'll
4: try. Um, so, I was concerned about the idea about pro-life because so many of us choose abortion so we can live our own lives. And because of so many anti-abortion people, and I have known these activists, are pro-Second Amendment and pro-war. And this brought me to the other linguistic puzzle, which is the slogan for the United States Army that was used in ads from 1980 to 2001. It is, be all you can be. And I had always worried about it. So, regarding choice. Be all you can be. You can be all. You can be. You who? You. Can, you can, you can, can, be all you, be, you, can.
1: I'm done.
2: Well, thank you for sharing. I'm sorry. Apparently it's fine on the uh, on the feed but not so much here Oh, matters. so here we go um i'm gonna pose these questions and i think what will work is to have you sort of jump in or we can go around robin uh and tag back to whoever spoke before you so this section will be 15 minutes it's abortion is affected by the intersections of numerous social categories how does this book address issues of race and racism, gender, class, nationality, and differing abilities in its stories and poems? Annie, you shaking your head. Does that mean you can't hear me? I can't hear you. Okay. What I'm going to do is type the question into the chat since it's working on the feed, and we um, will go from there.
0: Oh, you know, in, in my piece, you, you asked, um, how does this book address issues of race and racism, gender, class, and nationality? Um, in my piece at least these are all all girls from the same high school an upper middle class English medium speaking high high school and um, quite a few of them uh, in another in the piece I read and and also in another piece which I um, didn't get a chance to read they found out about uh, the woman who's performing these illegal abortions um, in the bridge by their uh, domestic help in one case a cleaner and you know um, in one case if someone's mother took their uh, domestic help to the woman over the in under the bridge and that's how someone else hears. And the intersectionality of class, um and that respect was interesting to me, where how the, you know, and, and the, the domestic help, those women uh, got abortions, uh, they were married, and in some respects, they just had too many children, and it was just too much for them, and which is such a different uh, reason from the stories that I relate in mine. And for editing purposes, we did cut a lot of um, some of the stories in mine out. But, uh, you know, there there's definitely intersectionality there in, in, in my piece. And I I read a lot of the pieces um, in the in the anthology, and I saw a lot of the same sort of intersectionality between class and and, and class going on within uh, di- sep- within essays, but also across essays. I saw a lot of um, intersectionality between different class, different countries, different cultures um, about abortions, which people did you know women did not necessarily want but ended up getting um so it was it was really neat to see those connections and in the introduction that Annie wrote she she actually gave some of those connections too so I looked at them also and I think um and I've said this before I think the sentence that really encapsulates the entire anthology for me is from um, Desiree's uh, um, piece which is they were pregnant with memories you know because that's what the whole anthology seems to be it is all memory whether you you want to have this memory or you don't want to have this memory. It is a memory. Whether you talk about it, don't talk about it, think about it, don't think about it. This, All the pieces are about memory. And I think for me, that is the collective intersectionality between everything, this collective memory. And now this collective putting down of these memories um, from you know the six from centuries ago to contemporary times. Uh, so, so for me that was the most important overlapping of things that I took away. I can address
1: this a little bit as well. Um, Maya, does that work? Can you hear me? Um, I my experience um living with these pieces for so long um, is similar as, as Sonia says, so many intersections but I found um, when I think back when I think about the book there's this there's this sense of like mountain rage that I feel this sort of deep internal rage because in piece after piece you see how these divisions that are created by the patriarchy whether they're divisions of class of race of nationality, of religion and all these artificial kinds of distinctions that I I just don't think they matter in the lives of the people having these awful experiences often, awful experiences, not always Um, but when there is an awful experience about abortion, it's always because of someone who needs an abortion has come up against one of these divisions that they, she, they did not create that they have to suffer because of. And it just creates this rage in me. And it also creates a sense of. The identity or the connection between all these different divisions, whether it is race, religion, class, nationality, um, education, just all these different divisions that are so basically meaningless and you realize that they're all coming from the same fucking place. And that really, it just comes home because you just see it over and over and over. So I, I find this, you know, an enraging book in the best way because it clarifies it eliminates what's at the, the of base of it all. Okay. Alexis, Desiree, do you want to speak to this? Podcast?
3: Yeah, I just, I just wanted to add um, that dimension of shame that Annie has, has talked about so much. Um, I think Sonia's piece really brought that to, to light. And it doesn't matter... It almost doesn't seem to matter what a woman's circumstance is. I mean, I mean, I think that's kind of the the most amazing thing about this collection that it is. It really is quite diverse in terms of the reasons why the uh, the the century <laughs> that you're in, the economic circumstances that you're in, if you're married or unmarried, if you are, um, you know, whatever your ethnicity is, shame cuts across all of those. And how how a woman is making the choice and juggling the shame um, or not, if they don't have it, they are, I think, one of the precious few. (laughs) Um, But there are many women who don't. Um, And so I think that that, that's where the empathy for the piece that the the anthology really brings out um, that that layer that really makes this uh, such a hard, hard decision to make for many and to live with for others.
0: You know, I do want to add also in that, that what struck me with, with so many of the pieces were how many, how many was the whole concept and role of decision-making, how many women got to make their own decisions and how, and the emotional, aftermath of that thing that uh, aspect of women's lives, emotional lives, physical also, but emotional lives, which um, which really does cut across, again, every every socioeconomic class. And, you know, there are things sometimes we wonder, what do we have in common with people? And it is the things that are often unspoken, which are your the abortions, the miscarriages, the pregnancies. The kids we meant to bury didn't mean to bury, um, you know. And 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 it was it was really really um, remarkable to read the poetry, the nonfiction, the fiction, and even within these different genres. Really, for me, what struck me was how. And Annie, this is why I think it's it was great that you included all of these. How within these different genres, the poetry, the the nonfiction essays, the short stories, that you know the excerpts from the fiction and stuff. How each genre shows a different aspect. You know, you would think that nonfiction might be more powerful than fiction, but, you know, Amy Tan's piece about her, the, the mistress whose who's, um, servant uh, domestic is um, it gets pregnant by the master, the husband, that was so powerful to me in so many ways as much as the real stories were. So it was really wonderful to see how the genres blend and bleed into each other with this particular um, topic.
2: I agree. Um, and I want to sort of dovetail from that uh, idea of talking about the genres, revealing multiple perspectives, to two new questions. One from an audience member is why is it important? Why is this book important now? Given what's happening with um, reproductive justice in this moment, where folks are trying to capitalize on COVID nineteen as a way to block abortion access. Um, and then the question from the audience member is. Does this book have any contributions from abortion providers, either legal or illegal?
1: Maya, I don't think we all heard that second question. The second question,
2: after why is this book important now, is from a contributor from one of the audience members. Is there a con- contributor who has provided either illegal or illegal abortions?
1: Is there a contributor who has provided abortions? Yes, there's a, a wonderful piece uh, by Dr. Sylvia Ramos Cruz. Uh, called abortion is healthcare from her perspective as a doctor yeah and there's another uh, at least one other as well um yeah susan, i'm not sure if it's susan richmond maybe some yeah there are at least two doctors in there and also quite a few amazing pieces about that really center on doctors on midwives um um Healthcare providers and some from the whole spectrum, like you heard in Sonia's piece, that horrible doctor who was not helpful really at all to that young girl having that night shaping experience. Uh, but I mean, the, so there are quite a few like that, but then on the other end of the spectrum, doctors who are heroes, heroines. Um, Gloria Steinem's piece in the book is about how she had an abortion at the age of 19 or whatever and the doctor said to her in return you have to promise me one thing this was in the 1950s, totally illegal um, and the doctors had, in those periods and times come off of course as heroes often um, as often as not, but he said to her he promise me one thing, you have to do something important with your life <laughs> which kind of places it like we have Gloria Steinem's career we have, we have him to thank for that so um, that's to that question. The others want to address that before we get to the other question.
2: And so just thank you for answering that question about the contributors. There are many um, iterations of legal and illegal abortion providers in this book. Uh, and so for the, for the rest of us, the rest of the panel, could you speak to why this book is important in this moment? I, I'll i
4: just start, and I can't wait to hear from everybody but I'm so glad it happened it reminded me about the Jane Collective did you cover that I mean the Jane Collective was actually women giving abort learning how to give abortions which I hope we don't need to start um, anymore but we might need to start the Jane Collective again you know and I'll be happy to get involved frankly I also about the politics of this it's um, it's Almost unbelievable shock. Not I mean, the the past three years have been a huge shock to our collective system. And I think that the normality of to deny the normality of abortion, which this volume so shows us how normal it is, how many people go through it, how many reactions there are to it, is really to live a, a huge lie that we're part of. And as you say. That Patreon why Anyway, please, I'll stop. Thank you. Yeah, there
0: actually is a there is a piece about the Jane Collective in here from the seventies, um, and it was started I think around nineteen sixty nine. And then when Roe versus Wade legalized abortion, it it went out of um, you know. But it was a group of women, really uh, stay at home moms, white middle class women, um, who came. Together to provide abortion services. And um, if I'm correct, actually a lot of their clientele were um, African American women from a different socioeconomic uh, economic class. But in the Jane Collective, it's hurt themselves. There was just one African American woman. So the racial uh, a component of that is very interesting, also, how it worked, how it didn't work, how people helped each other ac- across the lines. But, um, but yeah, in terms of today, I mean, for countries like Pakistan or countries where where, um abortion is premarital sex is taboo and, and not and a sin and absolutely not done supposedly and then if you get a, a get pregnant in those circumstances you know this, this book is very very relevant and, and 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 things seem to remain the same don't seem to change but in terms of America I was just looking the other day that the thing that helps that the thing that helps women the most is easy access to abortion services or reproductive rights services. And what is going on is that with them closing in so many states, Ohio, Iowa, et cetera, so many of the places for accessibility, so where you could, where, where you had a 12-mile distance, you now suddenly have, you know, like something in Texas, I think 200 miles or so. I mean, when you think of some, everyone can you know, even in the Jane Collective time, the rich upper-middle-class women would fly to London, I believe, to get their abortions. And, uh, you know, for, for people who can afford it, there will still be that sort of easy access, um, like in Pakistan for married women who can trundle in, as we saw in my last bit, and get an abortion. But it's the women who, you know, who might be socioeconomically in hardship and stuff. For them to get the car to travel, the gas to travel, the time off work to travel, it, it, it's, it's disastrous. It's disastrous. So. And it very much is an
3: economic issue for a woman and her family, and that's something um, that isn't isn't quite talked about. I mean, it's an issue of economic justice and human rights as well as reproductive rights. It affects. Um, Women who live in poverty, um, and their, and their children. I mean, people don't realize that that women who have abortions often already have children. They are not 16 year olds who had a drunk wild party night and regret their choices. They know perfectly well what a child costs to them, to their families, and to their other children. Um, it's an act of survival often. And to foreclose that is really saying that these people, if they choose to have an abortion, they cannot choose to have a better life for themselves, which is ridiculous. Um, One in five women, one in four women will have an abortion. Abortion's going down, so it's inching to one in five. It's one of the most common safest procedures done anywhere ever. And yet we can't talk about it. And and when we do bring it up, it's all around shame. Um, Why are women in the black community having them? Why are Latinas having abortions? Why are women of color? Well, all women have had them forever. And it is not a blame game, it is an an individual choice. I think what Annie has done and what Haymarket has done is put something out there to make sure that people can feel normal around something that actually
0: is normal. And- Yeah, I just wanted to say also that contraceptives are not foolproof. And for many women who think that they are done with their, you know, I have three children. It, 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 there is time in your life where you check the pregnancy test with anticipation because you want to see that. And there are times in your life when you're older and you're like, oh, no. You know, so contraceptives are not foolproof. Like Desiree said, this is not about 16-year-olds partying, having a good time, or married women trundling in thinking this is birth control. This is about people with, you know, their economics, their age, their health, their place in life. Abortion is is, is a right that should be available for all families. It's not even just a women decision. It's a family decision at the end of the day, you know. Um Thank you so much. Um, I want to say, if you haven't gotten the
2: book, go to haymarketbooks.org, grab the book, 30% off, and you get a free ebook with it. Um, And to say thank you so much to each of our panelists. You've all been wonderful, 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 and brilliant with the statistics and the truth. Uh, It is normal. We are normal. Um, And it is a family concern. So, Annie, if you could uh, give us your
1: final words, and then we'll, we'll part ways. I, I want to say it to that last audience question. And I think it is so important that um, that we realize that not only is abortion normal, but it is a human right. And this bifurcation, like this idea that if if women have an abortion and then they regret it that somehow that means all abortion is like ethically wrong. I mean, it is a choice. And one thing I love about this book is that there are pieces in here by people who have, who maybe do regret their abortions. There's one by Caitlin McConnell saying the abortion I didn't want, but she still believes in the right to choose. And that is just, you know, so fundamental and if if there's one thing that people get out of this I think that would be it um i also want to thank the shout out because i know there are a bunch of contributors who are not speaking but they're here so i just want to have a round of applause for the contributors who are listening to this call wonderful wonderful people the technology didn't work to hear from you but here is to you Thank you all so much. And Haymarket has been amazing to work with. I also want to say that. I just I love Haymarket, the way they're you all treating this book, Maya. You've been amazing to work with. And um you're you're seeing the book as I think what it is, which is potentially a real change agent. And on that note, final website, uh, choicewordsaction.org. ChoiceWordsAction.org is a website where anyone who wants to start events around this book whether they be book discussions there's a book discussion guide you can download there's also an organizing toolkit you can download at haymarket and also at ChoiceWordsAction.org. you can download the toolkit to start events but the beauty of ChoiceWordsAction.org is if you're starting an event there uh, online or once we back like in your neighborhood you can actually list it there and people can go it's like a for us around words. So I hope everybody checks that out Thank you so much for everybody involved in this book hundreds of people involved really this book. And thank you all. and Alexis, unbelievable proofreading. she was one of the many volunteers that helped this book. You're a Genius, and Maya as well. I mean fabulous support cool putting this together.
2: Thank you so much. and I, um, it's a wonderful book. I hope you all get your copy so I'm so pleased to see you all in person. Take care.